So we are in our last few weeks of our series in the beginning, which is covering the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And last week, we began a, few week, uh, a three-week look at the great flood that you read about in Genesis 6 through 8. We're going to have the slides up there today with the scriptures, but I always encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one, you can grab one from under the pew in front of you. Just turn all the way to the left. You will find it. Got a few Noah jokes this week to get us pumped up, to get us warmed up, to get us going. They are equally awesome, um, uh, as they are cheesy. Number one, where did Noah keep his bees? In the archives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Where I did the polar bears on Noah's, where did, where did polar, the polar bear, no, sorry, I'm messing this one up. Why did the polar bears on Noah's ark hang out near the insects? Because they were looking for the Arctic. I'm going to let it, just let it sit. It'll come in for the rest of us. Then this is where you get mad at Noah for not killing ticks. Um, all right, finally, and my favorite, is what kind of lights did Noah have on the ark? Floodlights. Flood you would think that, wouldn't you? But no, it's not floodlights. It was Israelites. I really thought that one would go better. I really did. Like, you get tricked by the floodlights and you can't, I, all right, all right. I'm going to work next week a little bit harder. I saved a couple for next week. I didn't want to throw them all your way. All right. Now that we're set up, we're warmed up. Last week, let's review. We talked about the judgment of God. We talked about how God saw evil in the world. We talked about the grief that he felt. And we talked about the judgment he decided to bring to free the world of this evil. And it's my prayer that that message helped you to reconcile in your heart this belief in a God who is a holy God, a God of love, a God that brings justice. And yet in a world that you live where you see constant evil acts like we saw this week in Texas. Now, as we continue this look at the flood this morning, I want to focus on the salvation that God provides. We're going to pick this up in verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door on the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. 
but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. So as we read, as we read last week, the first seven chapters of Genesis 6 are all bad news. But then in verse 8, his grace and his mercy becomes clear as he provides salvation for one family. You know, I always find it interesting that when people talk to me about the judgment of God, they focus on that, but there never seems to be any recognition of the salvation he also provides. It seems to be out of balance. According to the Bible, throughout the history of everything, God always says to people, like, look, if you follow me, good things are going to happen. If you follow me, bad things are going to happen, and I will bring judgment. And then throughout the history of the world, just like in our lives, then we don't obey him. Bad things happen, and God brings judgment. But if you also notice, among this judgment, he always provides a way of salvation. Either a, a, in terms of a warning ahead of time, or redemption afterwards. As we see today, he provides salvation. He provides a way. He brings hope in every single situation. No matter how bad it is. I mean, think again about the parents in Texas. This is a horrible tragedy that I don't even, as a parent, want to imagine going through as I see interview after interview with parents begging for their child to come home. As horrible as this is, the fact remains that if without God, there's no hope in any of this, none. It's just the way it is. But with God, it changes. Remember, I saw a little interview, a little clip of one little girl, a little nine-year-old who died, and she was on social media the week before, and she was talking about Jesus and how we will all go to be with him. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that little nine-year-old is now living out that little social media post. And there is hope. Now, does it take the pain away? I wish it did. Of course not. The pain... It's going to be deep, deep and long-lasting. But for those who believe and have their faith in God, that pain will not crush them. It will not destroy them. It will not defeat them. And if their eyes stay on them, they'll see God take even this pain and use it for his glory. Because God is a God who saves. Isaiah 43, 11, he says, I am the Lord, besides me there is no savior. Now, does that mean God will save everyone? No. We talked about this last week. Because if God saved everyone, then there would be no, no salvation to provide. You see, there cannot be salvation without justice. 
Justice is a form of salvation. Did you know that? In flooding the earth, God was going to destroy those who were destroying his creation. Now, what would happen if he opened the door and he said, hey, everybody, come on. It's a giant party. He would have been bringing that evil into the new world. There would have been no salvation. Yeah, I'm sure people would be on their best behavior for a good time because that's what we do when we're in trouble. Everything changes. We start looking to God. We start acting right. But sooner or later, as we get comfortable, we go back to our human nature. We go back to our old ways. And that evil would have been ushered into this new world. Justice brings salvation. That's why we, we, we practice this out in our lives, even though we don't like it with God, and we, we don't like to think about it with God because ultimately we're the ones on trial. But, but in society, we bring this out. This is why if you have a, a mass murderer, you throw him in prison. Why? Because you're saving other people from going through more chaos, more pain. You're providing, in a sort of a way, salvation. So God is a God of salvation among his judgment, but it is not universal. And so he's bringing salvation through this flood to one family. We see here in verse 8, he brings it to Noah, because Noah found favor in the eyes of God. He said Noah was a, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Goes on to say that Noah walked with God says he was blameless. Does this mean he was perfect? No, because if he was perfect, we'd all be doomed. It says he was blameless among his generation. That means he lived differently than the rest of them. He did not look like the rest of the generation. No follower of God ever should. But it doesn't just stick out because of what he was not doing. It says he walked with God. Man, wouldn't you not love to have that said of you? Say, that was Tom a man who walked with God. It's Doris, a woman who walked with God. There's, there's Mark, a man who walked with God. We'd love to have that phrase said of us that we walked with God. And if you study the, the, the Hebrew word for walk, it implies movement. Movement in a determined particular direction. This means where God instructed Noah to go, Noah went. What God instructed Noah to do, Noah did. He followed God. Sometimes people ask me, they're like, how do you know if somebody's a Christian or not? How do you, if somebody really follows, you know, is, is it really saved? And I said, well, first of all, you can never know the heart of somebody else. You're not God. You can't know. But I said, if you want to see what an evidence is for someone who really has their faith in Christ, it's not, did they come up for an altar call or did they pray a prayer one time or that they, they come to church here and there? It's the evidence is if they walk with God or not. That's it. First John talks about this. He says, this is the message that we have heard from, the, from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Remember, this doesn't mean perfection, but it's an attitude of wanting to follow God 
and the determined action to follow God. These are the kind of people that are going to have their faith in Christ. They're going to believe what Scripture says. They're going to read the Bible, then they're going to attempt to do what it says. They're going to attempt to see things as God sees them. They're going to have this ultimate desire in their life in all things to honor God. That's what it means to walk with God. Do you walk with God this morning? Do you really walk with God? So because Noah found favor with God, God comes to Noah and he says, look, I'm going to bring judgment and I want you to build an ark because I'm going to save you. You know, there's something special that happens when you walk with God. You start to walk with him in your daily life and if you've experienced this, you know what I mean. God begins to reveal things to you. Or you just begin to pay attention to the things he's been trying to reveal to you all along. Psalms 25 it says this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant, his agreement, his promises. You see, when you walk with God, God, he, God he speaks to you through his word. He tells you what you need to know, how you need to see things, how you need to, what you need to do, how you need to react. And this word secret in verse 14, it means like an intimate conversation. as he shares his plans and purposes. Jesus spoke to, this to, his, uh, to his disciples in, verse, uh, in, in chapter, uh, in I think, in John. In John. This is going to say 1 John probably, but it's supposed to be John. He says, you are my friends, and if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And for those of you who have experienced this, you know how cool it is. When you're reading something in the Bible and you pick up your Bible and you're reading something to you and you're reading a verse and it just, boom, hits you in the face about how you should be living or reacting to a certain situation. Or when you read the Bible and he reveals a new truth about something you're going through and how he's working in your life. Or when you get the prompting of the Holy Spirit to venture out into something new and as you read your Bible and you see godly guidance over people, you just become sure God's moving you into something. It's amazing. It's exciting. If you've lived this, you know it's inspiring. And sometimes it's overwhelming and scary and convicting, frightening. I mean, look at Noah. God asked him to build an ark. I mean, imagine God coming to saying to you, hey, Noah, or hey, Sue, what are you doing for the next hundred years? Can you build a cruise ship for me? <laughs> Sue would be like, sure, I'll have Mark do it. Right? I want you to devote the next quarter, you know, three quarters of a century, century, century and a quarter to building a cruise ship. I joke about this, but can you imagine how overwhelming that would have been? He's asking him to build a boat that could have been anywhere between 400 and 500 feet long. And I, I put a picture up here to see how long it is. 
You see the Santa Maria there, which Columbus came over. You see the Wyoming, which was the largest wooden ship ever built. You see also a comparison to the Titanic and the Queen Mary too. It was, this boat was longer than a football field. And someone's like, so some people doubt this. They're like, listen, how can one family build a boat this big? Well, you got to remember, people lived a lot longer those, in those times. And literally, you can do a lot in 100 years if you have a soul focus. He didn't have Facebook and stupid phone games to waste his entire day on playing Scrabble and, you know, Candy Crush, right? He had his own, he didn't have TV. He wasn't, you know, binging anything. You can get a lot done. And listen, we don't know what technology they had in those times. We know they, they dealt with, from Genesis 4, they dealt with bronze and with iron. We don't know what tools that they had. He might have hired people to help him. He may have had his family helping him. We know his grandfather died the year of his, the flood. His father died five years earlier. We don't know. We also know the ark is not the only giant ship built in those times. There's a, there, there, there's a Greek historian, and he wrote about a massive warship whose name I cannot pronounce. I tried, but it just ain't going to happen. And it was built many years later in the third century. And it was the same length as the, the ark. Now, nobody questions if this ship existed, even though it's the same length. It reportedly carried catapults and three to 4,000 mariners. So this was not an impossible task. But I can imagine it would have felt overwhelming. Not just because of Noah, what Noah had to do, but because of what it meant. I mean, imagine the, that his his difference in how he saw the world from that point on. That every person that he passed outside of his family was doomed to destruction. The house and everything that he had built for his life would not be there forever. I mean, everything that he did outside of that boat, he knows would not last. Imagine the weight of all that. And this is why walking with God is the hardest thing in my opinion, that any one person could ever choose to do. Because God is going to call you to do some very difficult things. Things that seem much bigger than you can handle, that they feel impossible for you. Feel like things that you're not capable of. of. Things that you can't do, or you can't get through, or you can't overcome. Maybe it's building an ark. Maybe it is giving up your job and stepping out in faith. Maybe it's God taking, allowing all the plans you had for your life just to be taken away from you and put onto a new path. It could be something as simple as God calling you to say, hey, I want you to go share Jesus with that person. It could be something as simple as saying, you've been struggling with this sin in silence for so long, you need to go confess it to these people. There is nothing comfortable about following God. And if we are comfortable in following God, we're not doing it right. God will challenge you in his word in ways you can imagine, in ways that you can't. And if you've been following God for a while, you know what I mean. After God said all of this, the narrator of Genesis sums up Noah's reaction with this. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him to do. Well, how do you do that? 
When God asks you to do things that feel too big, too scary, too overwhelming, how do you be like Noah and do all that he has commanded you to do? You should want to know the answer to this because he will ask you to do these things if he hasn't already. It's coming. Trust me. And it will come time and time again. Well, the good news is the writer of Hebrew, he gives us the answer. When he talks about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11, he says this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. We see two things I want to point out here. First, it says he constructed the ark in reverent fear. Now, this is not fear like we run from like a monster in a horror movie. This is fear where you understand that God is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the creator of all things, the God who's created billions or trillions of galaxies in the world. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. And you, in understanding who he is, are more afraid of him and not obeying his commands than you are afraid of what will happen when you don't obey him. Psalms 56 it says, in God, whose word I praise, in God I shall trust, I will not be afraid, for what can flesh do to me? And this is a big problem today. Too many of us do not fear God anymore. We have grown up in this culture that makes God to be a big, plush teddy bear. Or to, uh, to where he's like Santa Claus that gives us stuff. That he is our buddy and he is our friend. He is just uh, full of love. He's more like Cupid than anything else. And why God is our friend, he is full of love. He gives us good things. He is also the righteous judge of all the earth. And he is to be feared. In fact, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. But we're too busy being afraid of the past. We're afraid of the present. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of the unknown. But we're not afraid of God. Do you fear God this morning? Do you fear the righteous judge of all the earth? I'll tell you how you know if you fear him very simple. You do what he tells you to do. When he says in his word, do this, don't do this. When you do this, when you don't do that, you don't obey him to a degree. It's because you do not fear the Lord enough. You do not fear his judgment or you do not fear the things that are going to happen from his disobedience. Remember the rules of God in the Bible, his teaching and his commands, they're not to keep us in just in check because he's a dictator who likes control. It's because he knows what is best for us. He knows what we were created for. And so when he tells us to do something, it's because it's what's good for us. When he tells us not to do something, it's because it's what's worse for us. You see this in the Garden of Eden.
Scripture tells a husband and a wife to love each other like Christ loves the church. And, and for the church to love uh, their husband, a uh, wife to be like the church and love their husband like Christ. Like the church loved Christ. Well, then why do we have so many divorces? Because people do not fear the Lord. We don't fear the consequences of disobeying him. We don't have faith that his way is the right way. But just because you ignore his instruction does not mean you will escape his justice. I mean, imagine what if Noah, filled with fear of of everything that would happen if he built this boat, of the ridicule that he might receive, whatever fear that he had prevented him from building this boat, he would have drowned. He would have drowned. And I fear that some of us sitting here today, some of you watching at home, that you are on the cusp of drowning in your sin. Of drowning in your disobedience because you do not take the Lord seriously. Oh, and I pray. I've been praying all since yesterday morning that if that is you, that if that if it's me, that we would see it, that we would repent, that we would begin to fear the Lord. Not to escape his judgment, to experience his goodness. Like I just said a minute ago, the things that the Lord instructs us to do are for our good. They're for his glory. The thing is, sometimes God's timetable is a little different than ours. And and for us to experience the good things that he has for us, it won't be instantaneous. It's going to take a little time. And so that's where it takes faith. Noah had faith. Scripture commands us to have faith. In fact, it says that you cannot be righteous. You can't be right before God without faith. This means that we have to trust him and we take him at his word. We believe what he says over what we feel and over what we see, over what the world is telling us. But it's hard. Because it often means that we don't get to be in control. And we don't like not being in control, do we? No, we don't. We want control because it makes us feel safe, makes us feel secure, gives us a sense of power. But this is what God often asks to do. He says, look, you're not in control anyway, so you might as well just give it up. I want you to put your faith in me. I mean, this is what he asked Noah to do. If you, I don't know, if, you pay a, if you're a builder, you might have noticed this. If you, you pay attention to the ship plans, you'll notice that for God, God forgot to put something in. Did anybody notice what it was? There's no rudder. For those of you who have no shipping expertise, a rudder steers the boat. This means that Noah was going to go into the boat and he wasn't going to steer nowhere. No trip to Alaska or down the Bahamas to swim with dolphins. None of that. He was going to sit in a boat and he was going to go wherever the boat went. He was going to be at the full mercy of of God. And this is what God often does to us. He goes, here's what you're going to do and you are going to trust me with the rest. God, could I get a little, you're going to trust me with the rest. But if you could show me, you're going to trust me with the rest. Just do this. 
but I'd feel better if I just do this. I'll be there. Once again, we don't like it because we have to give up control. But it's these times where we put faith in God. We say, okay, God, you are telling me to do this. I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to trust you. What happens? These are the times where we learn that God is God and we're not. And as we see his faithfulness through our lives during the times that we are doing what we're supposed to do and focused on him, and then we see his grace and his mercy in the times where we're not, we're going, man, God is awesome. I can trust in him. He's worthy of my faith. And then the next time and the next time it gets a little easier and a little easier and a little easier and a little easier. And then sometimes God throws a really big thing that resets us and we have to trust him all over again. And then over the course of your life, you look back and you can just see the faithfulness of God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And you're reminded of a truth that you were supposed to know from the beginning that we lost with sin is that he is God and we're not. And it causes us to worship him, to have joy, to have our hope in him. It draws us closer to him. And I think most importantly, it shows the world around us who he is. Because if he is the only salvation, like we read in Isaiah 43, 11, I am the only savior, then it should be our desire for the world around us to know who he is. Because there is another judgment coming. We're going to talk about it all this fall. But unlike the ark in the Old Testament, the opportunity to be saved is open to everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. And if you sit here and your faith is in Jesus Christ, your number one concern in life, your number one priority, I don't care your age, your occupation, your personality, is to show people and tell people who that salvation is, period. If anything else is your top priority, you got your focus in the wrong place. And there's so much greater hope than this Old Testament flood because we have the ultimate ark in Jesus Christ. We have the ark that will not sink. We have the ark, as scripture says, that we will not be disappointed in, in Jesus. That whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You know, and it is my prayer, if some of you are here today and you are yet to step foot on that ark, to step foot and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh, I pray today would be the day. Today, you just stop tiptoeing around it. You stop wondering. You say, that's it. Today, I'm putting my faith in Christ. And I, th and I think there's probably two of you in here that need to do that. And there's not two of you because I'm thinking of two people. I just, the Lord puts that on my, it's putting that on my heart. There's two of you in here. Now, for the rest of us, if you're in that place, you're like, Jesus is my Lord, he is my Savior, then we need to be like Noah, who walked with God, who was blameless among his generation. Blameless. Are you blameless in your generation? Does your life stand out? Do you look different than everyone else around you? Because I tell you, Jesus is not going to stand out to those around you, if you look like everybody else. Where are my high schoolers and middle schoolers? 
Is your life blameless? When people look at your life, when you're in school, when you post on Snapchat and Twitter and, and TikTok and Facebook, do you look like everybody else? Or are you blameless among your generation? When you're hanging out with your friends at work and at school, do you look like everybody else? Do you talk like everybody else? Do you act like everybody else? Do you dress like everybody else? Or are you blameless among this generation? Adults, it goes the same for you. When you're at work, and you probably don't work with a lot of Christians, are you blameless among your generation? When you're at your kids' soccer games, when you're around your extended family, do you look like everyone else? Or are you blameless among your generation? We need to show the world how God is different. Philippians 2. I love this passage. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my absence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It means walk with God. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among you, hear this, to shine as lights in the world. You live, you walk with God, you live differently so that you may have the opportunity to say that judgment's coming, but here's our salvation in Jesus Christ. Come with me. That's the call upon our lives. And as we do that, God will call us to step out and in reverent fear and in faith, as we do as he has commanded us to do, we will see him do great miracles just as Noah did. 